Revolution Radio of FreedomSlips.com, the number one listener-supported talk radio station, throwing ourselves upon the gears of the machine. Revolution Radio, where information never sleeps. You called down the thunder, well now you've got it. you tell them I'm coming, and hell's coming with me, you hear? Hell's coming with me! Revolution Radio! We did not engage in conflict that was out of line with our mission. Is it disloyal? Is it sedition? Is it treason to oppose the hands of tyranny? Never! I will never send troops anywhere on a mission of that kind without telling them that if somebody shoots at them, they can darn well shoot back. I know not what course others may take, but as for me, give me liberty! Oh, give me a dark cloud is finally lifting across the world as U.S. military intelligence and their global partners are destroying the deep state criminal power structure that has ruled over our planet for hundreds of years. We are free with the God-given right, and we shall not yield that right to any power on Earth. Hi, I'm Scott McKay. The world is at, and I am your host on The Tipping Point. On Revolution Radio, where every Monday from 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, we bring you the latest in this ensuing takedown of this global criminal empire. That's an image of strength. You'll get the raw, hard truth here on The Tipping Point. So come join us Mondays, 8 to 10 p.m. Eastern, in Studio B at Revolution.Radio. Thanks for listening while we took that short break here at Revolution Radio, FreedomSlips.com. And now we're going to get back to your host. All right. Uh, welcome to Free Association. Uh, live from Newcastle Central Station, I'm in Destination 1850, which is a cafe bar at the front of the station in a kind of what used to be a Victorian arched foyer, but now it's in glass and has a couple of cafes in it. It's just one's a cocktail bar as well in the evenings. Sometimes, not always, but sometimes. And uh, it's a nice place to hang out. Doesn't get particularly busy, but it's steady and uh, it's, it's chilled out. And they've got electricity points under the seats, which is why I like it. So, I haven't got a plan today, so if anybody would like to jump on and have a conversation, you're welcome to do that. We'll figure that out as we go along. Or if you want to have a chat in the chat room, feel free to jump in and uh, we'll, have a, we'll have a conversation via the chat room. But I've, I, I don't want to go off, off it on, on the Charles III coronation thing, but that has happened today. So probably I ought to mention it, and there was a couple of other things. There's been uh, local elections this week as well. So my plan was to do updates every half an hour or so, or every hour, on Thursday evening into Friday morning, as the local election results came in. I didn't actually do that. I managed, managed to stay awake till, till about one o'clock in the morning. And uh, I did did a five, I did about a minute's worth of updates, but there was nothing much happening because it takes a while to count the votes. 
But what, what's happened in the local elections, this may or may not be interesting to the people in the States, but um, I want to talk about it anyway, because it's interesting to me. Uh, it's local council elections, so it's city by city, county by county. There was about, uh, I think it was 130 or 140 councils with some seats up for up for grabs, and there was about a third of the seats in most of the councils that were that were voting or whatever. Yes, yes, been day before yesterday. So it, was, it wasn't a major, necessarily a major thing. It's a little bit of an ongoing kind of. They do a third of the seats every year, pretty much, and it's kind of a rolling election in May, local elections in May just about every year I think I didn't vote because you need ID this year I don't have photo ID so I don't uh, I don't get the option of voting this year which is interesting I don't really care that much quite honestly because I don't like either of the main parties I'm not a huge fan of the Tories I've never voted Tory uh, I have voted Labour in, in the past and I've voted Lib Dem in the past I've voted Green in the past as well but uh, this time around, I'm not all that convinced about any of them, quite honestly. Now, I only voted Green because I knew the guy who was standing, and I quite liked him. He was uh, working in the bar in one of the real ale bars that I drink in, so he was doing a PhD in something or other at the university. I can't remember exactly. I don't, I don't remember his name or whatever. It was a while ago. But uh, that's the reason I voted Green, because I like him. It was a genuine, honest, kind of, pretty much sorted out kind of guy. For a, for a young lad, I mean, his mid-twenties, he was doing pretty well. Uh, so that's why I voted for him. But honestly, I'm not, a, I'm not a fan of any of these parties at the moment. The Labour Party, under the leadership of Sir Keir Starmer, is authoritarian, to say the least. The Conservative Party or the leadership of the guy who's running that particular mob is it's there's a bunch of gangsters basically. They're all gangsters ultimately. You just pick the scale of corruption that you're prepared to put up with. I prefer no no corruption at all if, if it's all possible. The Labour Party is corrupt at the local level to a greater or lesser extent some of the time. The Tories are corrupt all the time at every level because that's the nature of what they do. They're all about the money. So they're all about selling influence. Uh, but the, the results as they came in, or well, they came in during the day yesterday. Some came in overnight. Some came in during the day and into the evening. But the Conservative Party's lost over a thousand local seats, which I heard somebody talking as the as the voting started, as the as the vote count started on Thursday evening, talking about this is a, a Tory Party spokesman talking about losing a thousand seats, and it's it's kind of you always just kind of assume that they're spinning it so that. They're not expecting it to be that bad, so that if it's if they lose 500, then they can say they've they've had a good night because they didn't lose a thousand. But as it turned out, they lost over a thousand. So 
the uh, the news coverage that I've seen yesterday and today is basically that it was a very bad day for the Conservative Party. Rishi Sunak having a bad a bad day, and uh, he's got to he's got to account for himself because well, it's I mean it's partly it's the nonsense that went on with with the Tory party changing leadership and then changing leadership again and Liz Truss plunging uh, honestly that was just nonsense last September or whenever it was it was just nonsense 60 billion it cost the Bank of England to sort that mess out that Liz Truss and, and the other guy made of the economy just by being over ambitious and not understanding that the markets are in charge whether you like it or not, the markets are in charge. You can't book the market. Uh, and at that point, the British establishment closed ranks very quickly indeed. If you remember, it was about, about, about six weeks and, and Liz Truss was out. She lasted no time at all. And it's because everybody was sitting back waiting for her to fail. There was an interesting situation. I, I don't. I tend not to take these things too seriously these days. I used to take politics quite seriously. Now I just sit back and laugh because there's nothing else you can do. It's just like a, a bunch of idiots muddling through, trying their best not to screw up the economy. That's basically what it comes down to. If you don't mess it up, then that's a victory. Because as soon as you touch anything, the, the British economy is fragile. It's it's very very sensitive to, to everything. So as soon as you touch anything, the British economy is going to respond. And uh, if you're trying to try and just get too enthusiastic about any one thing, as in the case of Liz Truss, then it's not going to work. British won't for very long. They close ranks very quickly and they'll be quick to put the knife in when it's necessary. Anyway, that, that's the real side of things. The, the thing Now, I did sit down, I sat down yesterday and I wrote three pages of notes in my diary for a monologue about sovereignty and Walter Russell and universal mind and the continuum between monarchy, democracy and individuality. But I don't think I want to do that today. I'm going to, I'm going to save that and do a, a full show on, on sovereignty. But if you, if you happen to be looking for uh, a, a free Masonic ceremony, then King Charles III's coronation is exactly that. That's Freemasonry from start to finish. It's all heraldry and symbolism and divine right of kings and, and all these things that come from the Middle Ages aren't really relevant anymore. And apparently 52% of people in Britain support the mic, uh, which means that 48% don't. This is the last generation of Royalty, they'll get automatic support. They're going to have to work for a living after this. So, and if you combine that with the 
of people in, in Britain who are unvaccinated. You've got a lot of a lot of momentum for individual sovereignty, for the sovereignty of the individual. That's the direction we're we're heading in. And you can take you can take the coronation a couple of different ways. You can you can take it as a large scale ceremony designed to hypnotise the British people. Or you can take it as a confirmation confirmation of your own individual sovereignty in a national ceremony. I prefer to take it as a, a confirmation of my own individual sovereignty. But either way it was interesting. And they're still they're still doing the the sacred oil thing. It's, all right, I'm not sure, thanks Captain Fred, I'm not sure why the sound's slightly dodgy. I'm on public Wi-Fi also, that might be part of it. All right, switch Wi-Fi again. So I'm moving between two different sets of Wi-Fi, that's why. Well, I'll, I'll carry in regardless, because as long as it moves between the two, I sh we should be all right. At least there won't be any gaps. It might not, not, be, might not be great sound, but at least there'll be no gaps. So what was I going to do next? I'm going to. What was I going to do next? Switch, switch completely into Alan Does It and the, the rise of America's secret government. Maybe that's what I've just been watching. Either that or a little bit of Walter Russell. I think we'll go for Alan Dulles though. So let me uh, share my screen. And then I'll play, play a little bit of this. 25 minutes of it, 20 minutes of it. This is on YouTube, so it's easy enough to get at. But I'll, this, might, this might solve the, the issue with the sound. What implications uh, for the long term it has had over how the so-called government agencies are run and operated? Yes. Well, Alan Dulles was America's most legendary spy master. He was not the first uh, director of the CIA, but he had a major role in creating the CIA, and he became its longest-running director during the presidency of uh, Dwight Eisenhower in 1953. And he held the post into the Kennedy years, until he was fired or pushed out of office by President Kennedy at the end of 1961. And he had a very aggressive view of America's role in the world. He had been a corporate lawyer, uh, a major Wall Street lawyer, uh, along with his brother, John Foster uh, Dulles. And they had represented major multinational companies for many years. And when the brothers went to Washington, Foster as Secretary of State and Allen as a CIA director, they continued to essentially uh, function as the uh, aggressive advocates for American business overseas, overthrowing governments and assassinating leaders that got in the way of uh, the interests of these companies and of the strategic interest of the U.S. So many of the rather dark kind of sides of U.S. espionage that we're debating today in the wake of 9-11 and what the CIA did in the way of torture and extraordinary rendition, the kidnapping of uh, people off the streets and removing them to so-called black sites where they were interrogated. 
or mass surveillance of citizens and foreign governments. Many of these techniques were not developed after 9-11, but actually were uh, originated under Alan Dulles. Shocking in many ways. Uh, why did you write this book? Why did you choose to focus on Alan Dulles? Well, I have a long-standing interest in the Kennedy brothers, John Kennedy and, and his brother Robert, who was his political ally and served as President Kennedy's attorney general, uh, and then later was a senator from New York, because I think the Kennedys represented in some ways the high watermark politically uh, for the U.S. This was a dynamic team, these two brothers, who were committed, I think, to taking America into the future in a very enlightened way, saw that America should not or could not uh, dominate uh, the rest of the world without there being major and unfortunate repercussions, thought that we should have civil rights at home and that uh, labor unions and working people had rights, that the environment needed to be addressed, the environmental problems. But first and foremost, I think what the candidates were advancing was this the notion that we needed to live in peace with our so-called enemies. And in President Kennedy's majestic and historic speech that he delivered at American University in June 1963, which has come to be known as the peace speech, he in fact said this, that we have to live with, uh, of course, our great uh, enemies at the time, and maybe still again are, or the Russians. And he said we have to learn to live with the Russians because, this is a small planet, and we all breathe the same air. We all cherish our children's future, and we're all mortal. And I think this is a message that still is very relevant today. In any case, I think the Kennedys, by challenging what President Eisenhower had called the military-industrial complex and these very powerful uh, institutional forces of war and aggression that continue, I think, to drive American foreign policy, in challenging those forces, uh, they uh, put themselves at great danger. And of course, we know that both Kennedy brothers were ultimately assassinated. And so I had written an earlier book about the Kennedy brothers called Brothers, that it was a bestseller like my current book. And I uh, left the reader hanging a little bit in that book. I followed Bobby Kennedy's path as he searched for the truth about the murder of his brother in Dallas in November 1963. And Bobby Kennedy never believed the official report, the Warren report, that uh, Lee Harvey Oswald had acted alone and so on, was a lone gunman. And he believed that, in fact, there was a conspiracy, and it was a very powerful conspiracy uh, connected to forces within the U.S. government itself. And so I wanted to complete Bobby's mission, in a sense, his investigative mission, and and come to some understanding myself of who I thought was responsible for the murder of President Kennedy, following again along the path that Bobby had set out on before he himself was killed. And I came to believe that it was Alan Dulles who was at the center of the plot against President Kennedy. And so that's what motivated me to write this book. Obviously, it was a, an event that had an enormous impact on American history and world history, uh, the assassination of, of JFK. And I went to, to the bottom of it. And so that's why I decided to write this book about Alan Dulles. 
Maybe in a short way, if you can explain, uh, how did he arrive in Washington and, and then further on to this, uh, manage to get to the top of the CIA and then how did he mold the CIA in his uh, way of thinking? Well, Alan Dulles was born to a, uh, a very influential family. There were secretaries of state. There were major international lawyers. There were diplomats in, in the family. And so he was kind of born to power along with his older brother, John Foster. And so at a very young age, uh, in fact, during World War One, they're playing a diplomatic role overseas during the presidency of Woodrow Wilson. And they continued along that path as they pursued then careers, as I say, in, on Wall Street, where they ran the most powerful law firm called Sullivan, Sullivan and Cromwell. But they always had a, a foot in both that lead powerful world of Wall Street and Washington. And in some ways, they were, I think, pioneers of American power. That would become more common uh, later on, that kind of going back and forth between the world of finance and the world of Washington power. But the Dulles brothers really kind of symbolized that. So I think they, their ultimate goal, even when they were on Wall Street, was always playing a big role in the world of international diplomacy and espionage. And uh, they realized those ultimate dreams when, as I say, they were picked by President Eisenhower because they were very influential Republicans who'd raised money for his campaign and, in fact, had helped persuade Eisenhower to, to run in the first place. And so when he picked John Foster Dulles as his Secretary of State and Alan Dulles as his director of the CIA, it was their final triumph because now essentially these two brothers uh, ran America's foreign policy. And then uh, that gave them the base, that gave them the legitimacy, and that also offered them a vehicle to continue on and carry out the, uh, their objectives in some ways. Absolutely. Um, it gave them enormous power. Eisenhower was not a particularly involved president uh, in day-to-day machinery of power. He was older. He uh, was not from the kind of elite world that the Dulles brothers were from. He didn't go to Ivy League schools. He was a soldier. And he tended to be in awe of men in the corporate world and financial world who uh, did have this elite background. And so he kind of outsourced his presidency, really, when it came uh, down to it, to the Dulles brothers, at least in the area of foreign policy. They would keep him informed, and he largely shared their aggressive conception of America's role in the world. And so I believe when Allen decided that someone had to be assassinated, for instance, they discussed this in, in the White House. Dulles uh, and Eisenhower, both present at the meeting, where they discussed the assassination of uh, the charismatic leader of uh, the Congo, Patrice Lumumba, who then was indeed fell into enemy hands and assassinated with the complicity of the CIA. So they they did, you know, basically, I think, dominate. Eisenhower, to the extent that Eisenhower finally, near the end of his presidency, realized that his chances to go down as a great peacemaker with the Russians and, you know, that had become, after Stalin, more 
I think, uh, amenable to peace and to negotiation and diplomacy under uh, Premier Khrushchev. But uh, on the eve of the Geneva summit, uh, a spy plane that was run by the CIA was shot down by the Soviet Union over Soviet territory. And this created an international incident and sabotaged Eisenhower's final chances for peace. Uh, and he blamed this, as he should have, on the CIA, because uh, there's evidence that the CIA had pushed and persuaded Eisenhower to continue these U-2 spy plane flights over the Soviet Union, telling him that they were safe, there was no way that Soviet missiles could reach them. And uh, there's evidence, in fact, that Dulles intended uh, that plane to be shot down at that point in order to sabotage any peace effort with the Soviet Union, because he and his brother, Foster, were committed to this idea that there could be no detente with the Soviet Union, that we had to maintain that kind of belligerent and um, vigilant stand against the Soviets and so on. So this was the kind of subversion of, of deceitful activity that the intelligence agencies are quite capable of, and we see this up to the current times, of course. You used to like to be called a Secretary of State for unfriendly countries. Yes, that's what Alan Dulles wanted to be known. The Secretary of State, because his brother had gotten a more prestigious job, Secretary of State, he said he was Secretary of State for unfriendly countries, meaning they bring Alan in when the dirty work has to be done, or the wet work, as it's known in the CIA. Uh, assassination, uh, coups, overthrows, that sort of thing. Did that list of unfriendly countries include his own government as well? <laughs> well, that's, that's the million-dollar question that I try to answer in the book. Yes, ultimately, I think Alan Dells did perceive the presidency of uh, John F. Kennedy to be a, an enemy government. And in fact, when Kennedy forces him out at the end of his first year in office, Dulles does not go quietly into the night. He goes home to his uh, place in Georgetown where he lived with his wife, and he continues to operate as if he's still running the CIA, even though he's been fired. His deputies, his top deputies, continue to pay him business calls and confer with him. The CIA director that Kennedy puts in Dulles' place a guy named John McCone is not an old boy, uh, a spy from the CIA culture. He's an outsider. He's a Republican businessman from California. Uh, he's in over his head. I believe that it was Dulles and his deputies who continued to run the CIA through the rest of the Kennedy presidency. And they continued to uh, subvert the Kennedy presidency in a number of um, which I detail in the book, particularly when it came to Cuba, which was the flashpoint in international tensions in those years, but also in terms of policy with Russia, um, and even with allies, like uh, in France and Italy, where I, I think for the first time in any book that I'm aware of, go in some detail into the way that the CIA during the Kennedy years tried to subvert politics in Italy and in France, even to the point of uh, supporting a military coup against our ally, President Charles de Gaulle in France, which was a 
a, a huge crisis early on in the Kennedy presidency, and during which Kennedy was forced to admit to the French ambassador to Washington that he was not in control of his own CIA. Unaccountable authority. Is that how Delaferra and and his high crime cell company realized? Well, yeah, he, he he felt that he and his group, because he was not just a maverick, he was not a um, a lone wolf. He was accountable to a group of men, and they were almost entirely men, but they weren't uh, people who were elected. He didn't was did not feel himself accountable to America's, in other words, uh, system of democratic governance, even to the president that he was serving. What he was accountable to was this very powerful world of corporate power, financial power, the man that he had long been representing on Wall Street, these major multinational companies, the Rockefellers, um, oil companies. He and his brother uh, represented the oil industry for many years, major companies that had huge power back in the day in Latin America, like United Fruit, which could with the wave of one hand, overthrow governments there that they found uh, inimical to their own interests. So those were the people that he felt accountable to. And, of course, this is what many scholars like Peter Dale Scott and others, uh, going back to Wright Mills, the great scholar of the Cold War period, the sociologist, called the deep state or the power elite or the permanent government, or a secret government, as I call it in my book. These are the men who, no matter who happens to be in the White House, really are the true powers uh, behind the throne. Mm-hmm. I think he was one of the, those people who were, had the views, as you pointed out in the book, that they, 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 they thought of democracy as something that needed to be carefully, be carefully managed by the right men. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And what people think of democracy or what people put in Washington as their representative is not something that matters to them. That's right. They were willing to work with people, obviously, in high office if they were amenable to uh, the agenda of these men. But by and large, there was very little oversight over Alan Dulles at the CIA. I write about how when it came time each year for him to get his budget approved at the CIA by Congress, he would just go up to Capitol Hill or have one of his minions go up to Capitol Hill and confer with one or two key uh, senators, and they would just give him a blank check. And when he tried, he claims, to testify and to give more information to Congress, they would say, no, 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 we don't want to know. We might talk in our sleep at night, in other words, reveal deep, dark secrets that they shouldn't. So this was the kind of blank check that Alan Dells had throughout most of his reign in Washington. Why was Congress willing to give so much of money without asking where the money is going? Well, again, I think there was a a, a hegemony of interest here at work uh, within the world of American power. These senators and congressmen often were funded, financed, got kind of campaign contributions from the same wealthy individuals and interests that the Dulles brothers represented. They shared the same worldview that America should play an expansionist, aggressive role in the world as as multinational companies after World War II. 
began to take more and more of their share of the world's resources in various countries around the world. And so these men, and again, 99% men, really were all birds of a feather when it came to their sort of views of America's role in the world. And there was a coincidence of ideology here and a philosophy. So there was very little conflict between them when it came to down to it. Um, I think their ideas would often be worked out in these uh, these clubs, these organizations for the powerful, like the Council on Foreign Relations, which still exists, based in New York. And these are groups that bring together corporate executives, media people, top media people, you know, diplomats, Wall Street bankers, uh, government officials, academics, and they have their forums in those groups. They, you know, get together over dinner. Some of the most momentous decisions, such as the coup that overthrew the progressive government of Guatemala early in the Eisenhower presidency, those were first worked out in these discussions within the Council on Foreign Relations, where the Dulles brothers played a very important role. So that's how power coheres. You know, people always say, oh, you're just a conspiracy freak when you begin to discuss things like this. But that's of course, what power likes to do. It likes to conspire behind closed doors. It likes to work out its policies behind closed doors without interference. And it's only now, you know, in the day of WikiLeaks that we see how common this is, that that's what power does behind closed doors. Um, and, and they share their secrets and they work out their ideas without the prying eyes of the American public. So, and of course, the power will do whatever it needs to do to defend its interests. And if that means getting rid of a problematic leader overseas or a problematic leader at home, they will not hesitate to do that. You know, you spend a great deal of time, and uh, you explained it very well, uh, Dulles's relationship with three presidents, Eisenhower, Truman, and Kennedy. Kind of give us how we uh, kind of operated. Uh, was he a manager of presidency? Was he a manager of presidents? Or and at many times he set the agenda or, or he was largely unaccountable to any one of those and ran almost like a parallel government of his own? Well, I've discussed how the Dulles brothers and Allen in particular ran circles around President Eisenhower. So let me talk for a bit about President Truman, who preceded Eisenhower. And it was President Truman, of course, who signed the uh, uh, the piece of legislation in 1947 that created the CIA. Now, President Truman was very uh, leery of this new agency that he was creating. And in fact, he said he, his worst fear was that it would become some kind of um, American Gestapo, as he put it, Gestapo. In other words, a lethal organization that was enforcing it well through uh, dark deeds and violence and so on. And what he really wanted it to be was simply a, a collator, a collector of intelligence that was flowing into the president's office from various sources. And he wanted the CIA to basically collect the best intelligence and simply pass it on to the president. But in fact, it did become something of an American Gestapo under Alan Dulles. So even there, you have the beginnings of this divergence between what the president wants and what the CIA director and the, and the intelligence world wants. This continued, this, by the way, this 
kind of interesting tug of war with between Truman and Dulles. Even after uh, Truman was retired and living as an old, you know, elderly man back in Missouri, his home state, when President Truman wrote a startling op-ed column for the Washington Post just weeks after President Kennedy was assassinated, this is in December now of 1963, and in this very oddly and provocatively timed op-ed piece in the Washington Post, former President Truman says, takes the CIA to task and says the CIA is out of control and says it's doing things that not only undermine democracies and governments abroad, but our own democracy at home. Well, this was kind of a bombshell, particularly in the very fraught and tense climate of post-Kennedy assassination in Washington. And Dulles, it, be, it, it provokes a, a very, uh, uh, you know, a tempest in the media, and people are debating this and discussing it, and a number of people are piling on and attacking the CIA. And there's a kind of strange subtext, you know, the feeling of is Truman somehow suggesting that there might be some link between the CIA overreach and violence and the death of our own president. And so Dulles, who's retired himself, but still has a very proprietary kind of attitude towards the CIA, feels that he has to do something about this op-ed piece. He can't just let it stand. So he tries to get everyone he knows, who knows former President Truman, to strong-arm him into retracting this column that he he's written. And he's a very stubborn guy, and he refuses, of course. He stands by what he says about the CIA. And so Dulles does an extraordinary thing. He flies down to Independence, Missouri, where Truman lives, and he meets with him in person. And, and again, he tries to, he's notoriously charming when he wants to be Alan Dulles and also uh, intimidating. And he tries to both charm and intimidate uh, this elderly retired president into retracting the column. And, of course, Truman sticks by his guns and will not back down. So then Dulles does the next best thing. He flies back to Washington. If he can't change reality, he changes the perception of reality, which, which is what, of course, spooks do. He writes, for the record, a letter to the general counsel of the CIA and says to him, oh, I met with uh, Harry, uh, former President Truman, down in Missouri, and he admitted to me that uh, he did not intend to really say what he said in the article for the Post, and, you know, presents him as if he is some kind of, uh, you know, senile guy who didn't quite know what he was doing. or and, and so he felt very regretful about it, which, of course, was a lie. That's not what Truman was. He wasn't senile. He wasn't regretful. But Dulles changes the reality in this record, in this letter, rather, which then becomes part of the CIA record. And for years afterwards, scholars, including a lot of CIA-sponsored people, refer to this letter that Dulles wrote as if it's true, as if it's that reality, as if Truman did retract what his critical things that he wrote about the CIA. So this is, you know, how someone like Alan Dulles manipulates uh, political reality. And then I think we could talk for the rest of the day about what he did during the Kennedy presidency and afterwards. But as I say, I think there is strong and growing evidence today that the CIA, key figures within the CIA, uh, particularly uh, in the CIA assassination unit that Dulles had created to kill foreign leaders, 
were used and brought back to this country in November of 1960 to kill our own president. And then Alan Dulles was a key part of the cover-up because he conveniently got himself appointed by President Johnson to the Warren Commission, the official investigative body that looked into the assassination of President Kennedy and declared that it was the work of a lone, you know, mentally imbalanced man. So in, in his way of thinking, in Dallas's way of thinking, it's not the person who fires the bullet, but the person who pays to fire a bullet is... That's right. Well, that's the uh, epigram that I lead the book with, of course, and it's uh, from the famous Eric Ambler novel, Coffin for Demetrius, and one of the characters says that in the book. When you want to understand assassination, it's not who pulled the trigger, it's who paid for the bullet. And the Dallas, Dallas is not himself, the, the kind of machine around Dallas was, were the ones who paid for the bullet, and I believe when it came to President Kennedy's death. <laughs> so there were, according to your research, in your opinion, there were a group of people involved, and Dallas was the mastermind in, in organizing all of this thing, and then one of these uh, killers that were brought here probably worked with uh, Oswald and, and set it out, or? Well, what I, what I, the new information that I present in the book shows that two key figures, at least two of the key figures who have been long reported to be connected to the Kennedy assassination, going back to, say, the House Assassination Committee uh, hearings and investigation in the 1970s, which did indeed find that President Kennedy had been killed as a result of a conspiracy, and people tend to forget that very important government investigation that was undertaken after the Warren report. But in any case, that congressional investigation found that there were a couple key people, namely William Harvey, who was now deceased, but was appointed by Dulles to be head of the assassination operation run by the CIA against foreign leaders like Fidel Castro in Cuba. And what I show for the first time is William Harvey, who was a, a very, like Dulles, passionate political enemy of the Kennedys, felt that they were too soft on communism and so on, particularly when it came to Cuba and the Soviet Union, that he was based in Rome in the summer of 1963, where he was running the CIA station. And his deputy... I now report for the first time a loyal CIA guy, veteran CIA named Mark Wyatt, told a European journalist near the end of his life and told his grown children when he was retired that he saw Harvey on a plane flying to Dallas from Rome in early November 1963, and he was startled to see him going to Texas. He had no reason to do that. And he asked his boss at the time, Harvey, why are you flying there? And he was vague and said something going to look around. Well, Mark Wyatt became based on a number of things that Harvey said to him and, and other evidence that Harvey was indeed involved with the murder of President Kennedy. We know that Howard Hunt, another CIA uh, agent who was involved in a lot of you know, the operations arm of the CIA that went around doing all the dirty work that Howard Hunt, you know, notorious uh, 
you know, veteran of the Watergate scandal and so on, led the, the team of burglars that broke in at the Watergate while probably still working for the CIA. Uh, in any case, Howard Hunt, through evidence compiled by his own son, St. John Hunt, before his father died, admitted to being involved in, in a plot against the Kennedy assassination that did involve William Harvey. So people keep saying, you know, the uh, the naysayers, the people who want to cling to this fairy tale that Lee Harvey Oswald did it all by himself, well, someone wouldn't have talked if there had been a conspiracy. But people not only talked, they were shouting. And uh, the media didn't want to hear whenever this kind of information came out. The media has been part of this this vast cover-up of this monumental crime because I think the media was very close to national security agencies and to this day that remains the case when it comes to paper. All right, I think we'll, we'll leave it there. All on That's pretty much enough. I'm, I'm a bit obsessed with the Kennedy assassination. I always go back, I usually go back to it in October, September, October time, but for some reason I'm back to it around around now. So I shall I shall do a little bit more digging and uh, maybe do a few more shows on the Kennedy assassination over the next few weeks. I think it's it's helpful sometimes to go backwards, look at the history because we're still dealing with the same set of organizations really. We're dealing we're dealing with the Council on Foreign Relations, the Trilateral Commission all those Rockefeller-funded organizations. So we need to know their history to know how they're going to behave now. I don't like making assumptions. I'd rather have a pattern of history than I know how to extrapolate from that to now. And uh, I think making assumptions is a mistake. It's a big mistake because obviously big organizations do shift out their practices sometimes as well so but at least if we know the history we know what they're what they're potentially going to do and we can plan for that so i need to i need to look a bit more into the council on foreign relations and the trilateral commission i did some shows of a, a couple of years ago on the council of rome and i found that quite helpful i was looking at the eugenics and the council of rome that was, that was a very opening experience so i'll do the same thing to the CFR and uh, I think Epstein, Jeffrey Epstein was involved in both of those organizations I think he was very close, he was close to David Rockefeller and the Rockefeller Foundation there's something going on with that as well that I need to look at, I, I was potentially going to play some Whitney Webb today talking about the, some new Epstein papers that have been released but uh, that, that'll wait for another day I'll, I might just put it on the podcast I'm partly prepared I'm, I edit out what I try to do is edit out the people who are interviewing her because she tends to she she runs for about 10 minutes without taking a breath and then the interviewer's ego kicks in and they have to start talking so I try and take out the, uh, the ego of the interviewer when it comes to Whitney Webb, because the, the last American Vagabond conversations that, he does, that she does are good, but they involve quite a lot of Ryan Christian, and I try and 
take out Ryan Christian as much as possible. Even Clayton Morris tends to, to want to jump in and overdoes the ego a little bit. I think all of these people have a tendency to have large egos. I'd, I'll, I'd rather just hear what Whitney Webb has to say, quite honestly. And uh, I've heard a lot of, I put a lot of interviews that I'm going to stitch together into a half an hour Whitney Webb feature, maybe once a month, something like that. I'll see see what I can do with it for next week. But once a month, pretty good going. I've been quite active on the podcast this week, so there's a lot of material on there. I was posting about uh, chemtrails. And there's a couple of documentaries that I've posted. So the, the, the audio version of What in the World of the Spring is on there. And then the audio, an audio version of The Dimming, which is another documentary about prick chemtrails. I think you can get the gist of it without, without actually seeing what, what it looks like. Because we, we've all seen trails in the sky behind aeroplanes. I don't need to explain that to people. You can look up, if you live in any kind of city or any any kind of closeness to a, an airbase, then we've all seen that. So we, you can live without the the video for those types of things. So there'll be a lot more. There'll be a lot more on the podcast this week. I've got a lot of, I've got a backlog of material to work through. And I did take a break last weekend. Last weekend was a bank holiday, so I took some time off. And uh, this weekend's a bank holiday as well, so I'll not be doing very much until Tuesday. I'll take, I'm going to take some time off tonight and tomorrow. I'll go to stand in the park tomorrow morning probably, and, and then just chill out tomorrow afternoon and, uh, and on Monday. So I think it's probably time to say hello to the chat room and, and just remind everybody that Revolution Radio is a listener-supported station. So we've got two station, two studios running more or less 24 hours a day. Lots, lots of hosts, over 80 hosts. There's lots of different topics on on show on Rev Radio. I quite like the Fenton perspective on a Monday evening. I'm sometimes awake late enough to listen to that, so I quite like that. I like Lizzie's show on a, on a Tuesday particularly. And I quite like Mario's show as well, but I don't I don't I haven't been listening to that recently. And there's a few other people I, I quite like, but I don't I'm I'm in and out all the time. I don't really listen as much as I used to, but there's still some good material on there's, there's material that you'll absolutely loath and this material that you'll that you'll enjoy but you just got to find the right style find the right type of hosting and the type of right type of material we've all got a bit of confirmation bias going on but then you'll get you'll get the opportunity to listen to the opposite as well which is sometimes useful that is very useful listen to both sides and then make your mind up rather than going for your own confirmation bias it can be, it can be challenging. Or oh, the other thing I'm doing over the, the last few days, I've been testing out a new set of affirmations. So what I'm doing is I found this in, um, or oh, the woman who wrote, "You can heal your life." I've forgotten her name now. 
it's gone out, it's gone out of my head. But uh, I found that in I found some affirmations in in one of her audio books, which I find very quite useful. I'm practicing because I'm not very good at at blessing people and letting go, or blessing situations and letting go. Well, that's one of the techniques that she suggested. So that's what I've been doing. And uh, there was a party downstairs for me last night. Uh, there's a couple of guys renting the flat downstairs, and they they've been quiet up to now. But of course, it's a bank holiday weekend. They've got they got bunting in the window, and they've got union flags everywhere, so they're celebrating. And at about two o'clock last night, they must have come in from a from a club. The music went on, the volume went up, singing started for about an hour. So I thought, all right, here we go again. Back to back to Chinese karaoke days. So I just I chilled out with it. I, I was listening to something on YouTube, so I was awake anyway. And I just I sent some energy down to, to try and calm them down. And that didn't really work. It worked a little bit, I think, but not, not hugely. And then I just thought, well, bless the situation and let it go. And I just carried on listening to what I was listening to in, on YouTube as, as best I could, uh, which was Walter Russell, incidentally, The Secret of Light, uh, which actually I found, found that in YouTube, so I, was, I downloaded it and I was listening to it overnight. Let's have a look on BitChute and see what else is on there. The last part of the show, I've done that for a while, so let's take a look. I don't think there's very much in the entertainment category anymore because they've, they've taken a lot of it off. But let's have a quick look anyway, just in case. So, entertainment, I'll just say hello to the, the people in the chat room. We've got Fleeced, Malia, Wally's in the chat room, Mr. Rose in the chat room. Captain Fred was in there, and Mast was in there, so hello to everybody participating in the chat rooms. One of the things you can do to support the, the network is just join in the chat room. If you do have any spare change, then we appreciate your help just to keep things running. There's, there's a place on the website to make a donation. So if you can manage, manage to give us $5 a month, that keeps the servers running. Uh, we're all volunteers, so we don't make any money from it, but it'll keep the technology running. And uh, the bills have, got to, bills have got to be paid, so if you can't help out, then please do so. Or if you can't help out financially, just come and say hello in the chat room. All right, so in the in the category... Oh, we've got Guardian. That's a review of Guardian of the Galaxy 3, which has just come out. As Mike Williams on Crow Triple Seven Radio, that's an hour and fifty minutes. So you'll listen to that tomorrow probably. We've got somebody posting uh, old episodes of Miami Vice, of season one of Miami Vice. So those before they get taken off. If you're a Miami Vice fan, I was a Miami Vice fan back in the day. What else have we got on here? 
Ministry of the of Doug, Douglas McGregor. I'm not sure Douglas McGregor counts as entertainment, but uh, he's on here as well. Some David Icke on here as well. Again, I'm not sure that counts as entertainment, but it's in the entertainment category. Alright, that's pretty much it from me. Uh, thanks for listening, folks. I appreciate your, your attention, and hopefully we'll be back next week with a better microphone. See you again later. Bye. It's Barbara Jean Lindsay, the Cosmic Oracle. If you have questions about your past lives or future plans, need answers from the cosmos about your love life or career, or just want to keep your finger on the pulse of the planet, check out my show, The Cosmic Oracle, here on Revolution Radio at freedomslips.com. There have been imaginative science fiction writers for generations. Be evasive. But that doesn't mean that they're telling the truth as opposed to fiction. I know I'm aware of some archaeologists that have uncovered large uh, bones indicating giants in Virginia. Um, Genesis chapter 6 verse 4. Um, there were giants in the earth in those days and also after that when the sons of God came and unto the daughters of men indicating that there were giants before the Nephilim. And sons of God, plural. They weren't talking about Jesus coming down. And, and no, no, that, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. I'm Steve Crawford. Join me every Thursday night in Studio A at 6 p.m. Eastern for Factor Theory Live. Find us on www.revolution.radio. Great guests and great stories. What do you believe? Hi, I'm Bill Johnson. Some consider my efforts to be an underground law school. I am not an attorney, and I do not give legal advice. I teach. That's lawful and legal. Consider yourself served. You are to appear Wednesday nights, 10 p.m. Eastern, Studio A. My forte? Foreclosure and contract law. Grab your legal pad and pen. Learn a broad spectrum of law spanning administrative, criminal, family, tort, and federal law. Fools and losers cling to old cases. I dissect and comment on the latest rulings that control the